Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. This month we feature interviews with Calgary native Bruce Hunter and Ruth Reichel, the former chief editor of Gourmet Magazine in New York. Our show airs at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. on the third Tuesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can look for the podcasts at cjsw.com. Ruth Reichel is the best-selling author of memoirs including Tender at the Bone and Comfort Me with Apples, the novel Delicious, and the cookbook My Kitchen Year. She was editor-in-chief of Gourmet magazine for 10 years and before that restaurant critic for the New York Times and food editor and restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. She has been honored with six James Beard Awards. She lives in upstate New York with her husband and cats. Ruth Reichel, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. It's an honor to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. You're on an intensely busy book tour promoting your latest memoir, Save Me the Plums, and you're in Calgary today for a WordFest event. Before we get into all the tasty stories of the memoir uh, about your 10 years as the main brain behind prestigious gourmet magazine, let's talk a little bit about your eclectic career path and your lifelong love affair with food, just to get listeners to sort of get how you got there. Okay. All right. How did you get to New York City for running what's perhaps the most infamous, prestigious food magazine ever? Um, it, it it was such a circuitous path, and it sort of begins with me at eight years old discovering Gourmet Magazine. Uh, my dad was a book designer, and he used to haunt old bookstores, and he would take me along and find a pile of magazines to sit me down with while he trolled through the bookshelves. <laughs> yeah. And Gourmet Magazine just spoke to me. I mean, I, I, I will never forget, you know, being eight years old and finding this story. And... It was. I was very lucky. It was written by um, someone who was a Pulitzer Prize winner and the Poet Laureate of Maine. But he talks about going out to get lobsters from with in the middle of the night with friends and being on this island and they build a huge fire and they they cook the lobsters and they eat them and then they fall back on the sand and the stars are up above them and they go to sleep and they wake up with the rising sun and. You hear the fish jumping in the water, and you can taste the flavor of what they're eating. And, you know, for a little girl who was used to princesses on glass mountains and, you know, witches and uh, all kinds of fairy tales, the notion that real life could be as magical as any kind of fairy tale just it was eye-opening to me and got me really interested in food. And from then on, I was pretty focused on food. I got, I mean, I was the only eight-year-old in New York with a subscription to Gourmet Magazine. <laughs> but it still never occurred to me that I could actually have a career in food or that I could be a food writer. I mean, that, that idea just didn't cross my mind. So, But the hook was set that food and story somehow have magic together. Yes. And then also, because of this interest in food and because I was getting Gourmet Magazine, my dad and I would wander New York and the ethnic neighborhoods of New York. And I sort of got to know my father, who was very European and formal. And on these walks through Little Italy and Chinatown and uh, Spanish Harlem, I, I discovered my father and I realized that food was also a way to get to know people, that it was a particular lens onto the world. And the sharing of it had something to do with that. And Yes, and the whole sharing of food and the cooking food for people, that mm. um, it, it was an act that always made them happy. Right. And so I became a really passionate cook. And after graduate school, when I couldn't find a job that I liked in my field, which was art history... Um, I started cooking desserts for a restaurant, and then I ended up opening a little restaurant with some friends. Um, and 
then I, I was writing for a magazine about mostly about art. Um, but one of my editors was a customer. And he just came in one day and said, you know, you're a much better writer than our restaurant critic. And you can cook. Have you ever thought about writing restaurant reviews? I did not think, oh, a new career. What I thought was free food. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, my husband and I were living in a commune at this point. We were dirt poor. And this wasn't in fancy, glamorous New York, No, no, this is in Berkeley. Yeah. Um, And um, we are really living the sort of, like, counterculture Berkeley life. And so the idea that somebody is going to, like, pay for us to go to fancy restaurants... And eat. And eat was really thrilling. And... Um, so I did that, and it was. And my friends were a little put off. I mean, you know, they thought I was selling out. Right. It wasn't quite aesthetic and crunchy enough. It wasn't <laughs> crunchy. And it wasn't Birkenstock. <laughs> you know. It, it, yeah. And um, and I thought, well, I'm, I'll do this until my real life happens. And but I found traditional restaurant reviews really dull. I mean, they were kind of. You know, consumer reports about where you should go spend your money. Yeah. So the I started. The story wasn't there. The story wasn't there. So I wrote short stories and I just sort of wove the restaurant through it and there would be dialogue. And I, I'm, they, you know, this is, this is the mid 70s. It's new journalism. And so they let me do, I mean, I did science fiction. I did, you know, re- restaurant reviews set on Mars. <laughs> I did love stories. I did things set in the 18th century. Um, I did stuff in diary form. I mean, I really played with the form. And these reviews started getting this little cult following. And the next thing I know, the Los Angeles Times is asking me to be their restaurant critic. And then after 10 years at the LA Times, the New York Times asked me to be their restaurant critic. And it suddenly hit me that that probably was my real life now. Although it took so- every time you talk about in your book, every time you make a massive change, it's somebody else saying to you, hey, you know, actually, you've got all, all everything it takes to do this. Just do it. I never thought that I did, though. I mean, um, I didn't want to leave Berkeley to go to the L.A. Times. I I am very resistant to change. Um, and I was always frightened. And I actually didn't know about something called imposter syndrome until I <laughs> actually wrote this book and people started telling me that I was a poster child, a poster child for, for imposter it. syndrome. But um, it's really true that I just never felt... Um, adequate to do any of these jobs. And, you know, I going to the New York Times, I mean, people would say to me when I was at the New York Times, I read you religiously. And I would think, you know, that is ridiculous. <laughs> I, I don't want to be anybody's religion. Um, and then when Condé Nast called and asked me to be the editor of Gourmet, I really said, no, 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 wait a minute. Now you are really... This is ridiculous. You've lost your minds. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a writer. I am not an editor. I can't tell 70 people what to do. I know nothing about magazines. Um, you're completely crazy. But I said, I really love that magazine, and I really think it's time for it to step up. It's still... It had lost some of its magic over time, right? To me, it had. Um, I think for many of the... I know for many of the readers, um, they loved it. But, I mean, this is 1999. Um, Food and the world of food had changed dramatically. Yeah. And this magazine, which was essentially being written for a group of wealthy white people, it didn't interest me anymore. I mean, it it was... Because for you, the world was far bigger than that. It was, yeah. And, you know, one of my first reviews at the New York Times was of street carts. Right. You know, I mean, I really thought food belonged to everyone and that this magazine, which had meant so much to so many people, that it was time for it to step up and come into the modern world and write about the things that really mattered to 
my generation, not to a bunch of people who had cooks and pulled out the recipes and handed them to yeah. their cooks. And, and then did it to brag to their other fancy friends who also had cooks. Yes. You were talking about this is what you can do in your kitchen. You can recreate these stories and we're going to bring them to you. And I wanted also, Gourmet had had in the years when I was reading it, great writers wrote, mm-hmm. you know, MFK Fisher wrote for the magazine, Annie Prue wrote for the magazine. Um, Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine started as a story in Gourmet. And over year, over the years, they had gotten, they had narrowed their list of writers. So they were becoming, you know, more and more predictable. And I thought, you know, there are all these wonderful young writers who should be writing in the magazine and who should be exciting to the next generation of eight-year-olds. Right. And we should be doing travel that isn't just resorts and, you know, a fancy cruise. But we should be talking about, you know, backpacking through, you know, through Nepal. And um, and we should we should be just we should take a bigger bite of the world. Right. And so when they asked me to do the magazine, I said, "This is what I think you should do with the magazine, but I'm not the one to do it." Right. So so help us understand that element of it, too, because it wasn't just this corporate world that you were plunging into that you sort of had to, you know, measure up to your credentials. This world in and of itself is a very crazy, unique world. I mean, it's one guy who can basically afford to do whatever he wants. Yes. Which is beautiful in the, on the one hand and extremely treacherous on the other, because if he's tired of you... You're gone. You're, you're, you know, if you're no longer his shiny little thing, you're done. Right. It doesn't matter how successful you are. You're just done. The closest thing that I can compare Condé Nast to is uh, Versailles under Louis the Fourteenth. I mean, I it was a court. Thought. It was. It was like a court with you know courtiers who hated each other. You know, doing things behind each other's back. I mean, wonderful people to write about. They're all great stories. But probably one of the strangest corporations ever. Mm-hmm. And Cy Newhouse, the emperor of Condé Nast, said to me, I want you to do this and I will give you all the resources that you need and all the help that you need. And my husband sort of said, you know, he says that, but he's not really going to do it. And I have to say he really did. He left me alone. He le- gave me enough money to do anything I wanted and he let me hire people who knew how to do the things that I didn't know how to do. So it was really magical. Mm -hmm. Um, And that world is gone now. I mean, nobody will ever just sort of hand someone a magazine and say, here, make it it great (laughs) and spend whatever you need to do that. Yeah. Um, But I kept thinking in the back of my mind, okay, you know, the minute I do something wrong, I'm gone. I mean, he, you know, Cy was notorious for, you know, just on the spur of the moment, firing people. Right. And so I never thought, oh, this is the rest of my life. I thought, I'm a visitor in this strange and wonderful land, and someday I'll write about it. Right. And But in the decade that you were there, in the strange land, mm. dreaming big... Um, it was really big. I mean, it was dripping with limousines and fancy wine and, you know, huge names. And you had to kind of put on that mask and be there and be the boss there. And then you had your whole other world, too. You had your husband and your child who also loves food and, right? Yes. Like, no, it was it I, was a strange, ba- I mean, what I have found out only recently that um, they hired a PR person for the magazine when I went there, and she said her first job given to her by the higher-ups at Condé Nast was to make her do something with her hair. <laughs> you know, um, you have lovely hair. Um, but it was, you know, I had like this big frizzy head, and like, I didn't know you could blow your hair out, actually, when I got there. <laughs> I, 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 it's like the first time I looked in the mirror and I had straight hair, I was like, whoa, where did she come from? And they got me a makeup person, and um, I had a clothing allowance, and you know they sent personal shoppers to come and put me in, you know, appropriate the right costume. The right costume. 
and I had a personal driver. And um, I resisted all that for a long time. And then there was just a moment when the the driver, the first time I used the driver, he said, you know, there is a line I know in your budget for a driver, and I could really use the money. And I was like, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. And maybe I should just enjoy this while I can. Um, but it it is an odd world. And I never wanted either me or especially my son to feel like this is the way you're going to live for the rest of your life. Um, this this is I mean, to me, it really was not the real world. And um, I have to say, you know, when it went away, um, it wasn't the worst thing in the world, uh, you know, to go back to living like everybody else. It was kind of a relief. Well, you'd been you'd you'd spent ten years at Versailles, but you knew how to survive the real world before that. So yes. you were okay. Yeah, and more than okay. I mean, one of the things I do in this book is I bookend our two. Paris issues in Gourmet, and the first one where I really went, um, we, the entire staff, we took the entire staff to Paris. Which is a staff of? 65. I mean, okay, <laughs> so not everybody went, but I think about 40 of us went. Wow. And, um, you know, romped around Paris in limousines and staying in fancy hotels. And we took all, we had eight, well, we had 10 full-time cooks. They all went, they rented an apartment on the Ile Saint-Louis with a huge kitchen and they, you know, spent their days, uh, their nights in restaurants and their days recreating the meals they'd eaten in these great restaurants. And, you know, the young assistants like checked in and out of hotels every night so we could check out the hotels. And um, so there's this enormous luxury of the first trip. And then at the very end of the magazine, we decided to do budget Paris. And my managing editor said, oh, yeah, who, who are you going to find to write that one? You know, here, here's here's a an economy ticket, go to Paris, stay in the cheapest hotels you can find and, you know, eat, eat bread and cheese in the park. And I said, I'll do it. Yeah. And I liked that trip better. I mean, it was like, I realized how much money insulates you from a lot, you know, when you travel and you're staying in first class hotels and you're never on the metro or um, you don't see the life of a city. And the second trip was, they were both fun, but the second trip I really loved. And food is about the, is about reality it, it's, of places, right? I mean, you can do the whole fancy thing, but real bread and cheese in the park in France, it, it's yes. not going to taste like bread and cheese somewhere else. Yes, and the other thing is like when you're when you're when you eat in you know really modest restaurants in France, you know, and people understand that you're. And I mean, they thought I was there with my travel editor, and and I think people thought we were like this poor, very poor couple. You know, we wouldn't drink wine because it was too much. It was beyond our budget, and so they would go out of their way just as a act of patriotism to you know throw in a little extra and give <laughs> us so you know recommendations for other places to go and it's very different than when you're you know eating only in three-star restaurants mm-hmm. I feel like there's there's layers of story in this memoir it's like a trifle uh, you know there's all the whipped cream on the top but that there's all this earthiness too and in some ways it's a metaphor what all women, modern working women go through of trying to balance, you know, your role at work and your real life. And then, and then there's also this really deep, earthy sense of how important community is to you, the people you brought on board, how you treat those people, the relationships that you have before gourmet and also after. Well, a lot of this book is about me learning to be a boss because um, it was not anything I had ever really done. And tr- understanding that for me, it was more important to have a great workplace than it was to have a perfect magazine. And that it really was important to, I mean, the thing about magazine making is it is the most collaborative work that there is. 
and the joy of finding out what people are good at mm-hmm. and you know getting encouraging them to do that and the joy of making an issue and you know, we would go in and we would have we'd have a meeting and say okay you know let's do an issue on Paris or let's do um, an Edna Lewis issue. And then everybody would throw out ideas. And I remember leaving every meeting thinking, I wonder what this issue is going to be like when it's done. Because you watch it grow and change and everybody contributes to it. And the great pleasure for me of being at Gourmet was I took over a pretty unhappy office. And um, I went to the staff that was there, and many of whom had been there for their entire careers. Wow, yeah. And who had always been told what to do. And I said, you know, I'm not telling anybody what to do. We're going to make this magazine together. And what are your ideas? And they all wanted exactly what I wanted. I mean, the first idea was, you know, somebody raised her hand in the very first meeting and said, you know, we've never talked about where food comes from. We've never talked about the farmers, the bakers. Could we do a produce issue? And I said, great. And she said, can I be in charge of it? I said, absolutely. (laughs) And so, you know, people think I created the produce issue. I had almost nothing to do with it. The staff did that. I mean... But you created the room for it. I, I, I made the place for that. And that... I learned is what being a boss is about, is you hire really good people and you run interference for them. And that's that's your job. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you hire people who are smarter than you. I mean, I never told my creative directors how to do their jobs. I didn't tell Zan, who ran the kitchen, how to do her job. I, they They knew that better than I did. Yeah. And you had the respect. You had enough respect to know that and let them do it. And that was real. I mean, it was really fun to take this place that where people had sort of not been listened to, and suddenly just start listening to everyone and watch the magazine grow. And you know, I said, you know, what writers do you all like? Who do you want to bring in? And so suddenly we're getting, you know, the greatest writer. I mean, you know, David Foster Wallace and Chimamanda Adichie and Juno Diaz and Michael Lewis and you know, I mean, all these young editors are. You know, bringing in these people, you know, Ann Patchett, who actually wrote a hilarious essay after Gourmet closed in the Wall Street Journal called <laughs> I Killed Gourmet, because <laughs> we let her do anything she wanted. And, you know, Ann Patchett never wrote a bad word in her life. So No, she's fantastic. Um, but, um, you know, and, and, you know, to go to people and just say, what stories do you want to tell? You know, there must be some food angle. Yeah. So so it was only 10 years, and then it was, boof, gone, like two days. You guys had two days. You were planning the next giant party. You thought everything was going to continue, and gone. bam. Gone. Um, such a shock. I mean, I, I thought I was going to get fired. I mean, we had been called to a meeting, and I thought, okay, this is it. This is the moment I've expected all along. They're going to fire me. I never thought that they would close the magazine. And to be honest, I still don't understand why they would do that. Because Gourmet, I mean, I don't mean my Gourmet. I mean, the institution of Gourmet had such a connection with the readers. Um, There's still not a day in my life that somebody doesn't come up to me and say, I really miss that magazine. And to throw that away, to throw, I mean... That's what magazines dream of and so rarely get. And the idea that um, because, I mean, this magazine was profitable for 67 of its 69 years. Yeah. And I think that in a recession, it deserved a pass. But um, But it must not just have been about money. It must have just been he wanted the next shiny thing. No, I think it was about was it money. money? Um, I, I think... That, you know, Cy Newhouse, for all of his genius, and I think he did, I mean, he he was a magazine genius, he could not foresee a digital future. And um, the company was bleeding money, and we weren't the only one they closed. They closed a number of magazines. Right. And um, I I think it was just, um, we have to, they had two Epicurean magazines, um, we were fighting each other for the same ads, and 
their path back to profitability was sooner than ours. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Just you're gone. Just business. I also think that he thought at some point he would bring it back, which is something that he had done many times. I mean, um, GQ had gone and come back and um, House and Garden had gone and come back. And he wouldn't, people tried to buy Gourmet and so I wouldn't sell it. And I think he thought, you know, this bad time will pass Mm -hmm. and we'll bring it back. But the truth is, that this bad time for magazines continues. That is true. It's, we see it all over. It's it's a really different time right now. We're in the middle of a media revolution. Nobody still really knows how it's all going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, digital has changed print forever. And, you know, we watch newspapers and the magazines that still exist. We watch them struggle to figure out what their future is going to be. And And digital is still so nebulous. I don't know that it knows what exactly it is. So how do you find the exact recipe to succeed there? Exactly. And, And, you know, digital is also such, it's a hungry maw that can never be satisfied. I mean, you can't. You can't wait enough to fill up the digital space. Yeah. But I think I think that we will come to a time when people will understand that print is a luxury medium and that a f- there are people who will pay for print and that the model just has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the current model is not sustainable. But they'll f- it, it will find its way. It will find its way and you see – um, you know, small magazines start up all the time. Mm-hmm. With very brave people who dream. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, people thought that um, the Kindles of the world would kill print books, and that has, that's not true. Exactly. That was going to be my segue back to your memoir, oh, actually. okay. <laughs> Sorry. Because <laughs> we're going to need to wrap up pretty quick. But... Um, I was curious in your memoir about what was important about putting in recipes, which, by the way, I've tried some of them, and I'm going to make them all. Okay, I have had recipes in every one of my memoirs, and for me, they operate like photographs do in other books. Mm -hmm. Um, My editor did not want any recipes in this, and so I wanted a recipe per chapter. She wanted none. And we finally compromised on the few that are you, – you know that people would just go crazy if they weren't there. I mean the ones from the test kitchen where I take you through the whole testing and tasting process. And I think in the end you really want to know what that chocolate cake I sure is, did. Is, tastes yes. like. And you want to know what those biscuits taste like. Yeah. And – in the chapter about 9-11, when I talk about how we went down and fed the rescue workers, I think you want to know what that recipe was. And the others, I actually put a number of them up on my blog, com. some of the lost recipes. But it was a fight to the finish. And um, I'm not sure that my editor was right, however... This is the only book I have ever written where I've been counting the people who've said this to me. I'm now up to 53 people have said to me, I read the book in one sitting. And the reason my editor wanted the recipes out was she said, I think it stops stops the flow. And nobody has ever said that to me about any of my other books. So maybe she was right. It stops the flow. I don't know. I'm uh, a recipe nut. I yeah. can't comment. I mean, she, you know, she <laughs> thinks that people will, you know, come to the recipe and get up and make that recipe right then and put the book down. And I don't know if she's right or not, but we'll see. I just dog-eared them and kept reading way too late because yeah. it is really one of those books that you just keep turning the pages. What happens next? What happens next? Uh, well, you know, I try. I mean, people always say to me that my memoirs read like novels, and that's sort of where I'm going because I am addicted to fiction. Um, so I, I, I like story. So I really wanted this to be a good story. 
Well, it's a magical story, I think. And it and what I well, it's my bias, but cooking has a magic to it. You know, it can be so healing and freeing and intuitive. Well, and storytelling is like that too, isn't it? it? It is that. But you just you just practically promote my last book, which was my cookbook about how cooking saved my life after Gourmet closed because I was in such a terrible place that all I could really do was go into the kitchen. Yeah. And so I ended up writing my kitchen year, which was just about how cooking really is healing and um, it, it 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 takes you to another place if you let it and if you really immerse yourself in the sounds and sights and smells of the kitchen um, there's nothing better for making you feel well and also that you have to trust your gut it's okay to trust your gut Yes. Well, I mean, I because it, you know it's magic, but you don't need to be a wizard. No, you just need to be a person and try it and, and let try things it. sizzle. And yeah, and you know what? If you make a mistake, it's a meal. Yeah, you know, there's another one very soon. Yeah, Ruth, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This is I. I have loved talking to you. Bruce Hunter is the author of six books, including the novel In the Bear's House and Two O'clock Creek: Poems New and Selected. His poetry, essays, reviews, and fiction have appeared in over 70 publications in Canada, the United States, China, Scotland, and Italy. In 2017, he was the Calgary Public Library's 30th anniversary author-in-residence. Deafened as an infant, Bruce was born and raised in Calgary. He worked as a laborer, equipment operator, and landscaper before winning a scholarship to the Banff School of Fine Arts. He then attended York University and graduated with a BFA with honors in film and humanities. After stints teaching at York, Humber College, and Banff, he taught in the School of English and Liberal Arts at Seneca College in Toronto for 25 years. Bruce Hunter, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you, Diffney. Wonderful to be here. So you're visiting Alberta for a few days. You're uh, originally from Ogden. Mm-hmm. And you're back in town to promote Country Music Country, which is not a new book for you. It's a it's a reprint. That's right. Um, the book originally came out in 1996 and um, went through three different printing, two different editions, and uh, went out of print for a little while. And then what happened, I was uh, author in residence here in 2017. And Sean Hunter, with uh, the literary historian, who had written the book, uh, Calgary Through the Eyes of Its Writers, um, wrote about the book and wrote about my novel in the Bear's House. And also, um, I had heard to the writing community that Sean wanted to take me out to Ogden. <laughs> and a lot of things have changed in Calgary, and of course, my old neighborhood had changed quite a bit. Uh, and I didn't really want to go, you know, it's been a long time since I lived there and I, I wasn't quite sure if I was ready to do that, but I'm glad I did. We had a, a, a really nice day, uh, started at, um, at Gravity having coffee and then went through Crown Surplus and then we drove down what I call in the book, Aroma Avenue. And it was called that, uh, in the book because, um, when we took the number 24 bus, you always knew where you were, even if your eyes were closed by the smells. You know, the uh, pine crest uh, chicken uh, plant, uh, the stockyard, uh, eventually the distilleries, and then at the time I was uh, growing up, the oil refinery and so on. So we called it Aroma Avenue. So anyway, um, we Sean and I drove out, and uh, we went to my old house, and uh, I walked down the back alleys that I used to take to school and things like that. And I had a real affection, and also the fact that the book, came out of, you know, that really what is about a square mile of, of houses and then another maybe a half mile of what used to be prairie and then the riverbank and all that. So it was, um, it was a, a maybe a magical and a little bit mystical place since I'd written about it. Anyway, um, the response I had to Sean writing about me and my own response to uh, going back was very positive. And I took 
the original book and showed it to some younger writers, both in Toronto, because there are Ontario stories in it as well. And um, the response I got was terrific. They said, these stories, are, they're relevant, they're contemporary, and uh, they're so well written. And so that got me thinking, you know, maybe I can bring this back. Maybe this is still something that people are going to relate to. And and so it's a book of short stories, technically, although it feels in a, in a way like the continuation of people's lives because they're, they're interlinked. It, it very much is. Um, I started out writing individual stories, which is about what I could write in a summer. Uh, I was a college professor for a long time, uh, but I started as um, a working class guy. I started on construction when I was 16. In fact, I worked on some of the buildings up at the university and some of them downtown. And I was the, uh, the technically I was the lead hand uh, for the grounds crew here at the University of Calgary. So a lot of the trees we see this morning, I see them planted or helped prune and so on. But um, anyway, I decided to focus on working class people and their stories because there are so few of them uh, being told. For example, we talked about, you know, stories about strikes and I write about the pathology of a strike, what happened to people and how they break down the longer the strike goes because they have no income, they have no job, and it's desperate. Um, I have uh, another story about uh, one of the first women arborists who uh, has an alcoholic father. And so as an adult, dealing with a parent who is alcoholic or, you know, stricken uh, with mental illness, so those are all relevant stories, not just to working class people, but to everyone. Um, and the stories follow specifically the lives of the four youngsters, three of whom were born the year Hank Williams died, and uh, the sister of one of the fellows. So they all grow up together, and then the stories, as they move away, uh, two of them move to Ontario, one of them moved back. Uh, and then two of them stay here in Calgary. So it follows the progression of their lives and the progression of the city. And it gives a really interesting perspective of the city because, as you say, it's that that whole working-class ethos in one way that, uh, you know, that's the blood of the city, all the people doing all of the jobs that aren't on the front page in the newspaper necessarily. And also, the people who move away look back at the city from a different vantage point. So when you talk about, the, you know, the story about the strikes, for example, what struck me was that the, that the Alberta boy experienced a strike in Ontario and was thinking about what was changing in his province at the time in terms of, you know, working class people, whether you belong to the union or not, whether it's good for the economy or not, all those questions that are, as you say, still so relevant today. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the front pages of the newspaper and, and the story of the strike. Uh, I was in university when I started that story, and what had happened is my last job in my trade, which is horticulture, um, I was the head gardener for the city of St. Catharines in one of the cemeteries, and um, the guys had told me about a strike previously. And it was a very violent strike. Um, and it was a lengthy strike as well. And so as the strike went on, it became more violent. It's people were desperate, you know, and they wanted to end. And, of course, uh, it became very political on all sides. And this was a big deal in people's lives. And so I started to research through the newspaper archives, and I could not find anything. And I think I finally found maybe a half inch of newspaper column. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. This shows us that, you know, not only in, in our, uh, our media and newspapers and so on, do these stories not exist, but in literature, they don't exist. And I, of course, was studying Canadian literature in university. Um, I had read Guy Vanderhaeg's Man Descending, and I, I was so happy when I read that book because... Guy Vanderhaeg is writing about guys in Saskatchewan who were like my father, and he was writing about you know those kinds of jobs and guys like and, and women like the guys uh, I grew up with. 
So I was so happy. And then I discovered Alison Rowe in Lives of Girls and Women and Who Do You Think You Are? And although that was, um, it was Ontario, it was the same group of people, uh, although it was my mother's generation mm-hmm. and very much the East Austin of their time. But when I started to write about the strike, um, what I got into was the psychology of the strike. Not the politics, but the psychology and what happened to the people on the different side and how and why they resort to violence. And, and how difficult it is. It's like they're trapped in this, in this conveyor belt of things that have to follow one another, and yet it's not, it, it doesn't help any of them. Well, and, and I learned this in one of my Canadian studies classes in college, uh, that, you know, the top people in the union movement and in management have more in common with each other than the people who are walking the line. Right. And, and that's a pretty interesting perspective when you're on the receiving end of it because um, I think one of the things I say in that story, which you'd call tulip soup, interestingly enough, which of course is a, a Dutch metaphor, um, and I have a lot of Dutch friends, and I, and I grew up working in horticulture alongside a lot of Dutch folks at the idea of the um, Dutch were starving during the Second World War, and they ate the tulip bulbs because there was nothing left. Mm-hmm, and so went. that becomes a, a kind of metaphor for what happened during the strike. People are, people are desperate. People are eating what they can. They're grateful for the free turkey <laughs> that comes at the, from the Union even though they hate that turkey when they get it because they, they pay the price for it. Yeah. And so it doesn't come down on one side or the other. It's really about being caught in the middle. And that, I think, is the gist of um, a lot of my stories. They're about people who are caught in the middle. They're caught between an alcoholic parent who has a memory of life being a certain way, where the person who is caught in the middle realized it wasn't that way at all. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah. And all of these characters, they're themselves, and yet they're, they're symbols of every man or every woman. They're strong, they have their faults, and they're just doing the best they can in the margins. Well, and I think that's a, a really nice way to put it. When I went back to Ogden, um, and one of the reasons I didn't want to go back is I knew the history of what had happened since I left. For example, the old Esso uh, Imperial oil refinery was torn down. And what happened in the years after is the residue from that refinery had contaminated a whole neighborhood. And that cleanup operation, uh, without the legal cost, and, and those would be huge, was $31 million to clean that up. And my niece um, lived there at that time, and she was talking about what it was like. And, of course, I still have friends who lived there or their parents lived there or, or their siblings. And people would talk about, you know, how there's a ghost refinery smell on the hot summer nights, and you can still smell the refinery because there's so much oil in that, that soil. Uh, they clean up certain localized areas, but that's all old river bed. Right. So it's gravel, and that oil went down. But as I was out there, I was quite upset initially, and then I started to think about it from a, a poetic standpoint. And I realized the response to the book, um, when it was initially published, and, and then it was adapted for broadcast on CBC Radio. So it was heard nationally across the country. And I heard from people all over the place. And I heard from people in the state, and some of the stories were translated into Romanian and Italian, uh, I think Chinese, I'm not sure. But the fact that those stories of Ogden spoke to people so universally, because uh, often I'm writing about the psychology, but what I also realized is Ogden is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for the lost places and lost people. And that resonates uh, wherever you go. And that affected me deeply. And when we were looking at the decision to bring the book back into print, I think ultimately that was the vote that swayed me because I thought, people are telling me something here. They're telling me these are important stories. These are stories we don't hear often. And, and I would argue often enough. And 
I know one of the things that happened when the book was originally published was my publisher at the time, which was Thistledown Press, a very good press in Saskatchewan, started getting manuscripts from working class writers. Because all of a sudden, you know, people were recognizing, as I did, myself and Guy Vanderhake or Alice Monroe's stories. And I want to say this. I want to speak up for this. The, the wonderful thing that's happened, of many things, is that, um, you know, people have responded, and it's been a younger generation of writers who said, we like this. We recognize this. At the same time, uh, there's been older writers, um, people of, uh, you know, all different backgrounds, um, because the story covers all kinds of different people, the, the people who are in denial about their homosexuality. Uh, the guy who dies of AIDS, and his friends are in denial because they're playing along with him. This is, this is what you want. We're going to play along with it. Um, there's also uh, a Métis character who's ashamed of his indigenous background, and he's internalized the colonialism to the point that, that he has this self-loathing. And, and yet his young friends see him as the person who is, you know, is, is special different from them, has some kind of magic, and he's exactly. in denial about it. Yeah, and, and, and that's the projection, you know, which is really interesting. Um, and I, I, as we've talked about many times, I'm deaf, and I have been deaf since I was a young child, and I think what that taught me was to recognize when people are, uh, are being condescending, for example, but people are treating you differently, and I have been treated differently. We talked about residential schools, and uh, that was one thing I was considered for. My mother said no, and I'm glad she did. I had a hard, hard time in school because I could not hear. On the other hand, I was still in the, uh, in the arms of the family, and my grandmother said, you know, when the family learned about the hearing loss, you know, I was quite young. And she said, no, we'll bathe this baby in sound. But that has given me an empathy for what it feels like to be an outsider. Right. You know, and people are polite. You know, most Canadians are polite. <laughs> um, but there's a kind of cold but that politeness. that can kill you. <laughs> well, and social scientists say, too. you know, 40% of what we say is tone. Um, Condescension has a tone. Hatred has a tone. You do not need to hear the words. Yeah. And one of the things that's often said to people who are deaf is, well, he can hear when he wants to. <laughs> oh. Ow. Um, Ow, yeah. Well, when you use a certain tone, I don't have to know your words. Well, or I, even your body language. Your body language, all that yeah. stuff, you know. And um, those are recognizable things. And I have no doubt that someone who has experienced, first of all, self-loathing, and has experienced, um, you know, prejudice of different sort, they know. Yeah. They know that. You, you can be as polite as you want, but everything that you feel is coming through in your tone, your body language, and all that. So on, on, to stay on that topic... As part of what you do in your life, you have also become a real champion for uh, people with hearing loss. For example, your your launches feature uh, American Sign Language interpreters and uh, captioning. What's important about that? And and also, I, I you were telling me earlier um, off air, you were saying that the library is going to have this book, but the e-versions of it make it so that people can, e you know, more easily read it. Tell us more about that. Well, I'll back up a little bit. Um, I liked school when I was younger, but I was not very good at it. And I would often, uh, on the same day, I got the highest marks in, you know, this is elementary school in Ogden. I would get the lowest marks, and I was confused by that. And, of course, I internalized it to mean that I was a loser, you know, because I had no control. And one of the assumptions we make in teaching, in education, and in employment is that everybody has equal access, and they don't. If they don't understand the language or they can't hear the language or they can't read it, 
they're left out. And I've had low vision since I was very young. In fact, it runs through my family. And uh, that has made me very aware of what it feels to be left out or excluded to no reasons of my own. To no, it's nobody's fault. But um, when I grew up, uh, and it was typical of the kinds of things around mental illness or racial differences or cultural differences, we suppressed it. We all pretended to be something we weren't, which was normal, which was white, which was, you know, whatever the dominant culture was. As I became a teacher and as I became more experienced as a teacher, I met and I learned a lot from my students, especially my students with special needs, because I didn't look at them as special or different. I, you know, what I said to them, I said, listen, you know, whatever you need help with, come and see me. And, and I find it very undignified to come forward with a form that says there's something wrong with you. And right. based on that yeah. something wrong with you, you know, I'm supposed to do this and that. And of course I will do that. But you don't need a piece of paper. And if you're not sure where I'm coming from, take a good look at me. I have hearing aids in both ears that don't, you know, give me 100% hearing. And on a good day, in, in an ideal situation, somewhere between 60 and 80%. And a classroom is not an ideal situation for anybody uh, because of the number of people and the background noise and that. But all those things. And I, I ran two learning centers for the college I worked for, built and ran them. And, uh, and I think I was motivated to do that because I didn't get a lot of help. And I needed it. I didn't know how to ask for it. And I don't think if I had asked for it or knew how to ask for it, the people who were to help me would know what to do because it was just not part of the conversation then. So I really try wherever possible to make sure that we have American Sign Language, but we also have captioning, because a large part of the population may not know they have a hearing issue. Um, a lot of people are in denial, and I meet people all the time that come up to me and say, well, you know, I have a hearing aid, but I hate them. I put them in a drawer because <laughs> they, they hurt, <laughs> um, that kind of stuff. The other thing statistically, and this is, I think, an important fact to remember, uh, there are 260 million people in the world who have significant or profound hearing loss, according to uh, the United Nations. 240 million have serious vision issues. And these people, you know, cut across cultures, countries, and when you add those numbers together, and they're probably understated, because most people don't self-identify, that's almost half a billion people worldwide. No political party, no representation, and often no vote, and sometimes no job or underemployed. So those are serious things. Um, we can educate, but I think we have to educate everybody. Uh, the people who have the loss, of course, need help. But the people who are working alongside them are family members. They also need to know how they can help and what they can do. And it's a double kind of empowerment then, because I think a lot of people would like to to do better and and be more open and make whatever they're doing more accessible, but they don't know how and they're afraid to ask. Exactly. And I, I think, just to give you two very simple examples, um, I was at a family barbecue yesterday with my grandnieces and nieces and nephews and, and extended uh, family. And I don't get to see my grandniece very often. She's about 10 years old now and a sweet kid and very open to her great uncle. And so I started teaching her some really simple American sign. And she took to it right away. Kids at that age um, are receptive and they can be taught. It's another way for them to express themselves. Um, it's only one part of the formula, but I, I think one of the things that I really find annoying is how small the fonts are for different books. And ebook is a solution because you can use different readers. But I also think there's not an awareness on the part of the publishers and editors. And, and I think the writers are, are and artists and so on, uh, music, musicians included, um, can show the leadership on this one. Because why do you want to produce a record or uh, a book or a film that cannot be 
access by the potential audiences. Yeah, what are you creating it for if it doesn't translate to the audience? Those people are excluded because of a disability, and they don't need to be. Yeah. There, There are different things that we can do. And the solutions are not that difficult. And very often when you try to introduce something uh, like American Sign Language or captioning or whatever, the first line of defense is budget. Fair enough. But you can only use that defense once, and then after that it's a lack of planning. Because once you're aware of the need, uh, then you're going to try to build it into your budget. Because those people deserve an opportunity to come to an event. And the world does change, although slowly, I'm thinking about accessibility. You can't build public buildings like the one we're sitting in anymore and have it so that they're not fully accessible, whereas 50 years ago, that wasn't the case. Well, and I I think that's absolutely true. And let's be honest, all of us used that little button to open the door. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was not designed for somebody who had their hands full while they're shopping. It was designed for, you know, someone in a wheelchair and things like that. But that's also part of my point. If we can accommodate that and we can plan that, that benefits everybody. Because I will hear from people, for example, who come to the readings and say, you know, I don't wear hearing aids, but it was really handy to be able to read on the screen. Yeah. What the person was saying, you know, because... Very few listening circumstances are ideal. True enough. The stories in Country Music Country, I think, help us see and hear the world in a different way. What is, where do you hope these stories go next? What- I hope people will, first of all, recognize themselves and also be entertained. Mm-hmm. The story, uh, the title story of the book, Country Music Country, uh, takes its call sign from a radio station, CWBY, Voice of the Cowboy, which is based on CFAC in Calgary, uh, which at one time was one of the oldest uh, country and western stations in North America. And that story uh, is funny because there is a kind of dark humor that people who have faced adversity develop, which is, you know, oh, well, <laughs> we're screwed. It's a coping <laughs> Since skill. we're screwed, we might as well have fun. <laughs> yeah. If the world's burning down around us, let's dance. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming into Writer's Block today and telling us about Country Music Country. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Writer's Block The opening and closing theme for our show is Cloud Chaser by local band 36. You can hear more music from them at whatis36.com.